Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the First Order Edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I am here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Thursday, January 7th. It's been a while, Press Gallery fans. Political rhetoric has been heating up while oil prices are still cooling. Canada's cheapest crude dipped below $20 a barrel today. As we heard last weekend, stormtroopers are threatening to invade Calgary with petitions suggesting we toss the NDP. And in Edmonton, a new group called Progress Alberta is arguing that these are not the changes you were looking for. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Plus, TransCanada says it's going to seek $15 billion in damages from the United States government over the veto of the Keystone XL pipeline. As always on the Press Gallery, I promise to keep the Star Wars jokes to a minimum. Thank you. Okay, last one. Uh, here in the studio, ready to get their midichlorian levels tested. <laughs> We have City column, columnist Paula Simons. May the force be with you. <laughs> Provincial affairs reporter Mariam Ibrahim. What is midichlorian? Yeah. <laughs> I'll explain later. And reporter Sheila Pratt. The force is with me. Happy New Year. You all look fantastic. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. you. I want to start not with the groups I mentioned at the outset, but with uh, Deborah Drever, the independent Calgary MLA, who faced a barrage of criticisms last May over social media blunders, and she's still facing attacks over Christmas letters and whatnot. Uh, our Calgary Herald colleague Don Braid interviewed her this week and uh, says that we're our tone of our political culture is going Trump-esque. Uh, what do you think about that? I, d- I mean, I don't know um, if Trump-esque is the characterization, but certainly I think there has been a, a, a you know, in the in his PC sort of um, describes it as corrosive. I think that's a good way to describe it. It has been very polarizing uh, and um, I think really reactionary um, and, and sort of in some instances, unfortunately, sort of without any reason, you know, it's, it's very sort of knee-jerk. Um, which is unfortunate because th- that's not to say that there aren't issues that need to be discussed and debated and and you know batted around um, in the public discourse. But the unfortunate thing is that doesn't seem to be happening because there's so much of this really loud reactionary mm-hmm. type of rhetoric that's sort of drowning everything else out. Especially on Twitter. I mean, Twitter has become a really, really sort of um, vicious. In, in, in some instances place um, you know the the uh, Alberta legislature hashtag is just uh, sometimes just really unbearable actually mm. in, in recent months I'd say you know I mean in some ways this isn't new in the sense that I mean I think even back when Ed Stelmack was premier some of the really angry angry right-wing fury was directed ironically at Ed Stelmack leader of the conservative party at the time because he wasn't perceived to be conservative enough and it sort of parallels the rise of the Wild Rose as a as a political force in this province. But the attacks on Deborah Drever have been different in kind and in degree. I mean, these latest attacks had to do with the fact that some little community paper yeah. had typeset the wrong Christmas letter. They'd put the NDP MLA's Christmas letter instead of hers, and the paper subsequently came out and said, this was our mistake. It's not that Deborah Drever plagiarized somebody else's letter. We made an error. Now, you know, I suppose if you're a very suspicious person, you could say, oh, well, maybe they didn't really make an error. Maybe they're lying to cover for her. But so let's 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 pretend for a moment that, that these conspiracy theories are true and that Deborah Drever actually did run an NDP letter under her name. So that would be a little bit bad. Would it be as bad as the kind of hysterical overreaction that we've seen? I think I mean, that's the point, Paula. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean I, I, 
first of all, I, I don't. I, I think it is a typesetter's mistake because mm-hmm. I work at a newspaper and I happen to be <laughs> fully aware that sometimes newspapers typeset the wrong thing. Not it, you, or you don't ever make mistakes. But <laughs> typesetter. It's a typesetter. <laughs> I mean, sometimes mistakes happen, and it's you know. <laughs> yeah, that's Redford language. You, you know, sometimes <laughs> mistakes are made. Mistakes you know, have been made. But, but you know, I, I think it's fascinating because I think Deborah Drever was on a very. Uh, solid redemption arc in Mm -hmm. the last few months. I mean, she brought forward the private member's bill that would have, uh, that allowed people to break leases in cases of of, uh, severe domestic abuse without penalty. And that received the unanimous support of the House, and she comported herself very well in the legislature during that debate. She's been targeted. She's been targeted. I mean, and, and, that, and totally unfairly. And that's where I think the Wild Rose doesn't impress when they do that because it's an unfair targeting. She was on an arc of redemption. She'd really done some good work on that bill. And and they're picking on the tiniest of little mistakes without even checking if their facts are correct. So, so you can so kind of... I, th- I think they are... Um, I think they are over the line on that kind of thing. And I think it's worth reminding everybody, I was pretty shocked at the some of the Twitter feed about Notley um, in the Bill 6 thing that was, mm-hmm. um, you know, verging on the violent. And, and uh, that, that's not the rhetoric of the parties, but it's rhetoric that's out there. And now the the limits of discourse have included that. And that, I, I find that quite disturbing. Well, and, you know, and what, what Drever told Don Braid this week is that she's received so many death threats that she had to move out of the house with her grandmother and her little niece that she's helping to raise. Mm, I mean, yeah. that's disgusting. And I'm not for one minute suggesting that the Wild Rose are engaging in death threats. But I think, as Sheila has said, when you allow this kind of political discourse, it creates a toxic environment in which people then feel that they have license to engage in that kind of behavior. I mean, Deborah Drever is a very young woman who ran for office as a sacrifice candidate with no expectation of being elected. Uh, once she got elected, she was put under a microscope, unlike I've ever seen any candidate have to do. And she has, I think, come through a hell year uh, with a remarkable degree of uh, intact character and political performance. And I think, you know, what's happened to her is so misogynist, it's so ageist. It's she's become like the witch that, that the Wild Rose Party is going after. And there are substantive policy failures on behalf of a government that they could be better profiting their time to mm. focus upon than to attack one independent backbencher. And the, I, the part about the Drever thing that um, like th- that sort of makes me scratch my head a little bit is that we all know she was elected as an NDP candidate and you know, and then was very quickly, obviously, sort of booted from caucus with the with this sort of, you know, specter there being that she was going to be able to come back within a year if she sort of was on on good behavior, you know, set out and did work, you know, helping uh, victims of violence, as the premier had suggest, uh, had had told her to do. And then she did that. And, and you know, throughout the period where she hasn't been in caucus, it's been very clear that she, she still so identifies with the values of the NDP. She still supports their policies. So it's sort of like I, I scratch my head when I see people saying like, aha, look, she's working. She's working with the NDP. Yeah. Like, of course she is. She she holds those values. 
She wants to be back in that caucus. She's trying to get back into that caucus. She was elected as a member of that party. So this idea that like, aha, we caught you, yeah. sort of always makes me sort of raise an eyebrow and think, well, well, what did you expect? It's not like she went out and found a new party or you know, just carved <laughs> yeah. out this yeah. like island for herself. I'm an independent. I mean, she was put there and immediately tried to start working to get back into the place that she was kicked out of. So I don't know, that that part of it has always sort of made me scratch my head a little bit. Like, well, of course she, she identifies. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do wonder if some of this rhetoric in general, not the Dreaver case, and, and I certainly agree with Miriam about ex exactly what she just said about what did you expect Dreaver to be doing. But it's heightened because it's become more ideological. There's a, there is a large part of Alberta, the business community and Calgary and wherever, that are very suspicious for ideological reasons of the NDP and it's raised, yeah. uh, you know, so far they've been pretty pragmatic, you know, you know, but it has given the right wing an excuse, I think, to raise the heat of the rhetoric a bit and uh, that could be feeding all this. Hmm. Uh, we talked about the am amplification of the rhetoric, and, and the groups that the, Sheila mentioned. The groups, uh, stormtroopers uh, appeared this week, um, but I also wanted to draw attention to uh, the Alberta First uh, group, uh, headed headed by a guy named George Clark. Uh, Mary, maybe you can tell us a bit about these these guys. Well, I, I I don't know too much about like the people who are involved with him, um, but Jen Gerson of the National Post has a, a piece where she interviews him extensively. Uh, he it's interesting he produces um or builds like, like wind turbines and and solar panels so you'd, um, you'd think he would like an ndp government <laughs> <laughs> um but, but he wrong. is uh, um opposed uh, very much opposed in fact to the ndp government uh and has decided to sort of take it upon himself um to find a way to remove the government from power so he's there are petitions. He set a date of uh, February 9th to sort of take back, I guess, Alberta, really, is, is sort of the, the philosophy that's guiding him. It's um, obviously not going to work. I mean, uh, it would require some really extraordinary kind of intervention from the lieutenant governor, which uh, lieutenant governor, which is obviously uh, not something that is likely to happen. But it's, it's, it's interesting, this sort of like... Um, how how some of these groups are sort of looking to legislation and the Elections Act and, and other sort of regulations to try to find a, a, a space uh, where they can sort of find a way to, you know, take back in a, in a, in a sort of um, weird reading of, of these uh, pieces of legislation, uh, take back the government in, in a way that they, they say is, is should happen, you know, to, in a way to put Albertans first again, uh, in the case of this man, uh, George Clark. It's, it's, it's very fascinating how quickly to me these groups have sort of proliferated and like... It, it hinges on this deluded belief that if Mr. Clark can get 80,000 signatures on a petition, so that's the first deluded belief that he can get 80,000 legit signatures on a petition, that he can then march on the legislature and compel the government to have a plebiscite on both uh, Bill 6, the and farms... The carbon the, tax. And the carbon tax. So... You know, he says he's going to march on the legislature with a group of people. He's gone on Twitter. I mean, it's the it's the, it's the most 21st century way to plot a revolution. So I mean, you go on Twitter, you announce that you intend to overthrow the government, uh, and 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 sh shouldn't Mr. Clark be glad he lives in Alberta, a place where mostly people just laugh at him for saying this instead of arresting him? So he's planning to march on the legislature uh, with his 80,000 signature petition uh, and demand these plebiscites. And if they won't have the plebiscites, then he will overthrow the government um, and we'll have a, a new government by February 10th, he vows. So 
what frightens me a little bit is that that somebody can put a crackpot loony idea out on Twitter and suddenly be getting all this attention to which we are now hmm. feeding in. I mean, a giant profile in the National Post, which also ran in the Edmonton Journal, dignifying this wackiness with some kind of, you know, that he's supposed to be some bellwether of Albertans. Uh, when, in fact, as I think you alluded to in your introduction, you know, the latest opinion poll of Albertans shows, if anything, um, that they are more progressive left than ever before. What, what do you think, Sheila? What's it, behind this It's, it's this a combination kind of, of things. It's, it's people, uh, rural Alberta in the south has never been pro-notly, never will be pro-notly, so they have a government in there that d- they perceive doesn't represent them and support them. Twitter is the vehicle, and as as Miriam said, it's become pretty grim out there in Twitter land. And there is also this economic uncertainty, and there's a so there's a huge combination of of factors coming here together to create uncertainty. And the Notley government, you know, they're inexperienced. They're, you know, doing as best as they can, but they have 15 cabinet ministers and not much experience, and they have a lot of work to do. So it's it's a, it's a difficult time politically. But but you know, you have to think about this, Brent. I mean. Remember that Jim Prentice called that election a year earlier than he had to. Mm-hmm. So imagine an alternate history of Alberta in which Jim Prentice is still premier, <laughs> which could very easily have happened. Um, so Jim Prentice is still premier. And guess what? The price of oil is still a crater. Than 20, where it is. Oh, you mean it yeah. wasn't Rachel Notley's yeah. fault that so, oil <laughs> fell? Is that so, the point you know, you're making? So, so imagine that the price of oil is still, you know, bottoming at $19 a barrel. Uh, imagine that the Chinese stock market is still... Mm-hmm. Crashing. I mean, the Chinese stock market had to shut down multiple times this week because of runs on investment. Imagine that all, you know, imagine that I- Iran and Saudi Arabia are still making, you know, uh, angry noises. Imagine that North Korea is still boasting that it tested an H-bomb. There would still be a lot of uncertainty and fear, and all of these people would be just as angry at Jim Prentice as they're angry now at Rachel Notley. I mean, some of this is about a distrust of Notley and the NDP, and some of it is that she happens to be the person sitting in the big chair while a lot of economic forces beyond the control of anybody in Canada are ravaging people in in this province. Um, We're going to be facing a new budget process in March that's going to be coming up. So do you think all this pressure, all this this rhetoric, is this going to sort of tamp down NDP uh, expectations and goals in terms of what they want to get accomplished? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think so necessarily. They've been pretty um, um, steadfast in pushing forward with some things. I mean, we, we have heard that they are going to, for example, maybe um, move a little bit slower with the implementation, for example, of the $15 uh, minimum wage, which would make sense. Um, that's al- That was already something that was being sort of phased in gradually. So to take your time with that is an easier thing to do. Uh, they've put some pretty, you know, uh, specific dates um, around some of these other issues, um, you know, the carbon tax um, when when that's supposed to come through, and you know, they they have totally um, um, sort of uh, stood firm on those on those kinds of major policy issues, you know, things that are attached to climate change strategy, things that are that are going to be attached to the royalty review, which we will be getting the results of probably any week now. Um, so you know, I don't think so. I mean, they have a majority. They want they 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 have the right to use it if they want to in the legislature. And I mean, if if there are policies that you think you need to get done, um, and you know maybe you're not so sure if you're going to have another chance at doing them in another term, uh, you you probably want to push forward and and get 
as many things done as you can. I think their challenge is, is going to be, and I think Miriam's right, they'll stick with a lot of that platform. And their challenge is going to be to engage people on it, not do a Bill 6 mistake and just yeah. do it and thinking everybody's it's <laughs> not, how not they, caring. It's, it's how, how they, they do roll it. things and out. And there's a positive narrative. They can roll things out. There's a way they can, um, you know, say these things. Climate change, they're going to have, if, if they can have a win on the federal level with some of the things Alberta wants to do, I think there's a way to roll that out, but they have to engage people, and that's going to be the challenge for them. And some won't want to be engaged, but there's a lot of middle ground out there that that are still supportive and want to get things done. And and don't forget that Bill Six continues, right? Yeah. All those consultations are going to be going yeah. forward, and so I mean that is still over there, <laughs> not too far away, perhaps bubbling. So I, you know, Bill Six, I don't think has gone away at all. Uh, also looking into the crystal ball, uh, there's going to be a, a leadership, potentially a leadership, uh, a couple of leadership contests, the PCs and the Liberals. And the Liberals. Um, Colby Kosh, our colleague over at the National Post, had an interesting column this week where he speculates a bit and says that, you know, maybe Brian Jean and the whole sort of alternate uh, universe uh, government um, might, there might be some dissent over there. And uh, he's suggesting a couple outsiders, uh, Brett Wilson uh, from Dragon's Den fame uh, and Jason Kenney from uh, Federal Politics. Do you think we might see uh, some surprises, some trial balloons, some interesting people show up? Well, I ha- I ha- this is to take over the Tory Wild Rose, whatever happens. Whatever happens. And yeah. I have heard that uh, about Jason Kenney for a while now, and he's the guy that could sort of bring it together. And certainly the federal... Tories down there, the Harper Tories want nothing more than to have that, um, mm. what I would term a probably Wild Rose takeover of what's left of the t- provincial Tories, and then run the, pro- uh, you know, to bring them, unite the right, excuse me, <coughs> bring them back together. So that 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 is a possibility. I mean, can can the progressive conservatives be rebuilt is still a completely unknown story. It's way too soon to call that, I think. Well, do you have any thoughts on that, Paula? You know, if the Wild Rose had the sense God gave a goat, they would stop attacking their own <laughs> leaders. I mean, you know, uh, in my alternate universe, uh, Jim Prentice would be premier and then, you know, Daniel Smith would have defeated him in the next election and she'd be premier. And instead, you know, uh, the, she lost control of her party. She gave up on her party. Then Brian Jean came in to rescue the party. And if now they're turning on Brian Jean, then they deserve to be taken over by the George Clarks of this world. I mean, <laughs> uh, are there any other predictions or prognostications? What do you think, Miriam? Prognostications <laughs> um, about anything about, in general. About, well, about the le- the, the, oh, the, the leadership le- uh, races and you know, I don't know. I mean, I. The Tories, the the PCs here have to get through their own leadership race in mm-hmm. the next couple of months first before they can even begin to really think. I mean, I don't see any sort of merger happening before they actually get their act together and 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 figure out who's going to lead the party, not in an interim fashion. Um, and so, you know, I think they have to get that that in order first. Um, so, you know, I will not venture any <laughs> predictions beyond beyond that. And that that's already a sort of murky. A sort of um, a situation there with in terms of a, a dearth of people wa- seemingly wanting to step forward to take on that challenge. And really, after 2015, I think everybody in Alberta should be afraid to make a political prognostication. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only thing I can be <laughs> certain of in Alberta mm. right now. Hmm. Um, yesterday, we heard news that uh, TransCanada Corporation is seeking $15 billion in costs mm-hmm. over the re- U.S. rejection of Keystone XL. Obviously, Obama's decision was politically motivated uh, in, in some ways, and he uh, attributed some of the rejection to uh, climate change and things like that. Um, 
what does Trans Canada stand to gain by this apart from the fifteen billion dollars? <laughs> is there is there is there a political? Presumably, play that's mostly what they want to gain. <laughs> <laughs> they want to recoup well, there costs. Is, I guess there is a political, uh, but you know, Canada has had many of these um, challenges and paid out hundreds of millions of dollars to U.S. companies when we try to enforce an environmental policy change, or even when Danny Williams tried to get certain conditions on a on um, some of his oil development. So we've been on the other end of this for a very long time. It'd be very interesting to see, and the U.S. has won all their cases against us, and we've paid out a lot of money, so it'd be interesting to see what NAFTA, what the result is in this case, because there were environmental reasons that, that he did it. It wasn't just the, I know TransCanada argues, other pipelines have gone through, mm-hmm. so you treated us unfairly. You, so that's the problem with these trade agreements. What one company gets, everyone must get. You can never change the rules. Guess not. But, but you know, I mean, this is the this is the pro and the con of NAFTA. It is supposed to mean that Canadian companies get treated as though they were American companies. And it was obvious from lots of the Keystone XL rhetoric that that wasn't what was happening, that people were saying, oh, this is like a bad foreign company. And, and you don't get to say that under NAFTA in that kind of way because you're supposed to give the same privileges mm-hmm. to a Canadian company that you would give to an American one. You know, I am not enough of an expert on the intricacies of NAFTA law to know if TransCanada has, has much. Well, they have a case. Whether they have a winning case mm. is a different question. Whether this is the best use of TransCanada's time and money is a rather different question. Mm. Because if you can't get the political buy-in in the United States to build the pipeline, even if you win in court and get a settlement, you still don't necessarily expedite the building of the pipeline. Yeah. So, I don't know. It, it, it begs a really interesting question. I don't know what Donald Trump or Ted Cruz think about Keystone XL. I mean, certainly they don't have the same environmental qualms that uh, that an Obama would, but there's a lot of protectionism in that Republican nationalist rhetoric. Um, I mean, if Ted Cruz is too Canadian, uh, maybe Keystone is too Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, after all, you know, Mr. Trump says now that, you know, Cruz, born in Calgary, yeah. it's very suspicious. Yeah. I was born in Calgary, too, and I, I know that. <laughs> I've always been suspicious of Brent. Yeah, me, always. too. <laughs> uh, it's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week, we, we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always with a political connection. Paula. All right. I can hardly wait to recommend uh, a film I saw this week, The Big Short, which is the most unusual Hollywood film I've, I've seen in years. It is a postmodernist uh, it is a postmodernist production based on Michael Lewis's book about the collapse of the uh, US housing market and the in, in, in the ensuing collapse of the uh, the American stock market, which sounds like a really boring thing for a <laughs> movie. But this movie is so witty and so, uh, provocative and so outside the box and s- not it doesn't just break the fourth wall it smashes it down uh, and if you never understood how uh, the US stock market collapsed in 2008 if you never understood subprime lending and subprime bonds well this movie will explain it to you with bubble bath and champagne <laughs> and and halibut <laughs> stew and it is 
I, I can't say enough delightful uh, and charming things about a movie about the collapse of the world economy. Um, it's 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 great entertainment and uh, surprisingly educational. Uh, it makes me hu- makes me hungry. I want some halibut stew. Um, I want some champagne. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, you. I, I, I too liked the movie. Um, I rec- read over the holidays um, the story of Jessica Ernst's fight uh, with the energy regulator over her tap water that used to go on fire. I'm sure we all remember. Well, actually still does. Um, where she, there was uh, a lot of gas drilling down in, around her farm and she turned on her tap and a lot of methane would come out and she was the first one who showed you can turn your tap water on fire. It's a very interesting story about fracking. It's called Slick Water and um, it's uh, by very, Andrew by Nikifor. Andrew Nikiforik. It's got lots of controversial things in it. He's a, he's a very interesting controversial writer but it's a real eye-opener about um, a uh, certain part of oil and gas development in southeastern Alberta. Hmm. Uh, Miriam and I actually talked about this beforehand, and we have the, we picked the same thing. Um, Jason Markisov's uh, uh, piece on uh, well, the death of the Alberta dream. Yeah, yeah it's uh, really quite fantastic and horrible at the same time. <laughs> uh, it, it goes blow by blow through the implications of loyal, low oil prices and yet another year that appears to be headed for the doldrums. We might have a lot of oil, but uh, hope might be in short supply here. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com opinion or at the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Sheila, and Miriam for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next week when we'll talk about what to do about that Starkiller base and all those stormtroopers. Uh, that's it for now in the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.